right, welcome everybody. I'm sitting here with Battalion Chief Brian Vaughn today. So tell us a little bit about your journey. Introduce yourself. Tell us where you started. Tell, how, tell us how you got to this point in the fire department. and um, Let us get to know you a little bit. Certainly. I, um, I was born in Los Angeles and slowly made the journey down to South Orange County by the time I was in high school. And um, you know, played sports in high school. I liked outdoors activities from surfing to dirt bikes to skateboarding. And, of course, team sports like football and baseball were things I did growing up and um, I um, stayed to try to play football further in my life I was at junior college or co place called Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa California and tried to pursue that and I did and from there I made a decision that football was over for me I had a couple opportunities but they were not I was done with football and my opportunity was to go to University of Southern California or Boulder CU and my best friend was at CU and I decided to go there with a lot of urging for my parents to leave the nest because a lot of my friends that went to Southern California were home every weekend. Like Thursday through Sunday, they came home because it's not really a conducive city to hang out on the weekends if there's no football or something. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. it's a little, it can be iffy. <laughs> um, and from there, I went to University of Colorado Boulder and met my to-be bride, Meredith, and she was from Colorado Springs. We graduated and went to the West Coast. She had a job in Los Angeles to start, and my job, entry-level job, was um, in Monterey County, actually, and where I was in direct sales for these things called cell cellular phones. And Weird. Yeah, and I sold these giant brick phones and bag <laughs> phones to the uh, in the Salinas Valley to all the farmers. The ag people really benefited from these, so we were really selling them like hotcakes. And the natural progression in the sales process was to take a little more complicated sales job, and that was um, a telco. We used to have telcos back then, if you remember, the baby mm -hmm. bells. Yep. And before we had software-based billing, we had these mainframe-based billing, and you'd make deals with the telephone companies to put a bill page with their your phone bill so you could sell things like voicemail, long distance, mm -hmm. and 900, and all the different types of bills you could attach yeah, it was weird. For for all the kids out there, yes. these were actually when the phones were tied to the walls. That's right, they were. Like you had to pick up a thing. You know, I think we had the the phones that you could wander around because the cord, so the cordless phone. Yeah. The, but yeah, so that was the phone bill. It wasn't this, you know, cell, cell bill that we yeah, get now. Way different deal. Yeah. Um, and I did that for a couple years and then hopped into what I considered the next process of sales, and that was uh, commercial real estate brokerage. And the emphasis was on retail and big box. And that went from South San Jose all the way up to Sacramento, really. We had our foot, kind of our hands in a lot of it because it was a tight market, obviously, in the Bay Area to come put a Home Depot down. Yeah. Um, but I was able to do that nearly five years and um, was, you know, a tough job, competitive. It was um, interesting, fun. You learn a pretty broad spectrum in California back then. We didn't even have real estate forms the government did. You know, so you get like 50 page. Yeah. For 1,200 square feet of shop space, you're reading for three days these yeah. complicated lawyerese stuff. Anyways, from there, uh, Meredith and I, this was obviously at the height of the um, tech boom, or the dot-com boom, I should say. Yeah. And it was, we were in Palo Alto, and rents and everything else were insane. And, um, you know, to buy a tear-down 1,100 square foot home with an 800 square foot detached garage was like a million five 
$2 million. Lines were around the block and they were, you know, paying 20% over asking price. Like right when they got to the front of the line, you're like, well, we can't do that. Yeah, hard to compete. Yeah, she was commuting to Berkeley at that time and I was um, commuting to the South City and it just was a, a lifestyle that wasn't great. We found out um, we were pregnant and made a big decision to come back to Colorado because we were kind of on, my parents were down in Southern California, hers were in Colorado. So we came back this way and um, stayed in the same business. I got a job with Grubb and Ellis in downtown uh, Denver. So I was commuting from here to Denver every day, which is also a um, pretty big burden on myself. And of course the new baby, we had yeah. Jake at that time. And lo and behold, I ran into one of my good friends, Brian Lynch at the downtown YMCA here in Color Springs. And he was wearing this t-shirt and I bet Brian will remember, but it was a famous over-the-line tournament in San Diego. And I had asked him, I go, do you go to and play in that tournament? Because I'd been to watch a bunch of times, and it was well-known in Southern California. And he told me yes, or I can't remember what he told me, but we kind of generated a friendship, and he told me he was a firefighter. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Never even met one before in my life. And, um, again, mind you, I'm just starting this new business where the to get up to speed time is it's three to five years anyway you slice it yeah. before you're self-sufficient. And two weeks later, we were to go home to Southern California to a friend of mine's wedding. I ran into two really good friends of mine. Actually, one of them is a, like a, I want to say it's a, a district chief, but, you know, some kind of deputy chief in Orange County Fire Authority in the city of Orange is where he came through. And then my really tight friend, Robert Stefano, is the chief of Costa Mesa Fire Department. He felt when Riley left, he okay. got that job. Yeah, yeah. So I ran into those two guys at this wedding. And I asked him, well, what because I played junior college football with one, high school football with one. The older brother was three years ahead of us, so we never played, but he walked on at USC. We were just all talking and friendly, and they took me under their wings uh, when I was growing up. And um, I asked him what they're doing. He says, I am, uh, we're, we're in this thing called the fire reserves. We're going to be firefighters. I'm like, what are you talking about? They were both in real estate. Yeah. So I was unclear and they kind of explained it to me and I was like oh interesting I came back home and I think I had met like Tony Seeley the next week and he was a firefighter so I had all these things coming together and sure. I was like oh maybe I need to investigate this because I you know I can't say that my ex I wasn't ecstatic about commuting to Denver yeah. doing these things and um talked to my wife about like hey I want to look into this because I knew that I was explaining to me like some of the culture could be like team sports you're working together where you can say you're on a team in real estate but it's cutthroat and it's a money driven bottom line business which is fine that's why they're there and um, so different experience and I went and said I'm going to check this out and I went to EMT school at, old, at Penrose and I went at nights two nights a week like three hours a night you know I've got my first taste of Dave Mead there. And, um, I can't even remember who my main instructor was, but she was great. And because I didn't know if I liked blood, I didn't. I was like, I don't yeah. even know if I could do that part of it. The size sure. I'm into, but yeah, this other thing, I don't know. Yeah. So I did it and ended up liking it, and um, said, "Heck, I'm gonna." We decided as a family we can give this a go. We were in a decent position to do that, coming from California, and so I signed up for the first test and I did terribly miserably like D or F band I don't even know yeah. what it was but I went in like I was trying to talk someone up on a 
a job interview for fun and they're just yeah. staring at me you know across the board blank stairs <laughs> so i didn't i didn't know what to do yeah and i signed up again the next year and found out there were some things you could do to learn how this testing process worked and i took all the advice and took the classes and tested in different places and then csfd ended up canceling the test that year so here I am, I'm still doing real estate and I'm trying to do this other thing. And that's like my heart's over here, but I'm still driving to Denver every sure. day. And, but then the desk test came out and um, went through it. Ended up, I was at the upper end of the B band. So I didn't even know I was gonna get a test. Yeah. And funny story to that whole thing was, I was at work and Brian Lynch calls me and says, hey, did you get your offer? I'm like, no. And he's like, offers are gone out. <laughs> Yeah. And I said, well, what, what, what do you, what do I do? What does this mean? Yeah. And being the good friend he is, he ponied up. He's like a third class firefighter or something. Yeah. He goes up into the training chief's office and goes, Hey, where's this guy? Right. Direct him. And yeah. he looks and says, Oh, I don't even have that name on my list. And so Brian did a bunch of legwork, I think, at jeopardizing his position as a brand new yeah. firefighter on the job. They, um, they found out there was something where it was misplaced or whatever happened. And like two days later, I'm sweating this out and I get a call like, you need to go down to Gauls on Tejon. And I go down there and get a uniform for the academy starts on Monday. And I get in there and, of course, my locker's below Cody Morton's, you know. <laughs> got the prime real estate yeah. below the shortest guy in our yeah. academy. but So we made it that way. And um, since then, it's just been, a, I mean, it has fit. It fit for me. Yeah. And met great friends like you and other people yeah. that were going through life at the same rate, pretty much. Sure. And, um, and when those times, I mean, you're sharing some really hard experiences in the house, in the firehouse. And... Other times you can't stop laughing at the church giggles for 20 hours straight when you ride with someone like Ryan Douglas in the back of, yeah. you know, or any of those guys with those kind of sense of humors that sure. can entertain you. And um, yeah, I just feel like I've been blessed ever since. Yeah, it's certainly a good place to be. And I, I would I would say the same thing. You know, you've been a great friend over the years, you know, and we have gone through a lot of, you know, different stuff with kids. My kids are a little bit behind yours, mm -hmm. but they're kind of following the same path. Yeah. So I just, I just watch you. Yeah. I just say whatever Brian does, I'm just going to follow that. <laughs> if he makes a mistake, I'll try not to do it. But otherwise I'll just, I'll yeah. just keep Don't it. do this. He's just like my, my parent mentor. <laughs> so <laughs> I helps. let you make the mistakes first and then I just, it just don't. And, and I have the same people ahead of me yeah. that I followed. I didn't even know kids. I didn't know hockey. Yeah. I asked Jeff work. I'm like, what does Travis do? How does this work? Where do I go? Yeah. What's all this mean? Yeah. Tier like, double triple yes. A thingy. So confusing. Yeah. So we're doing our uh, self-help series this week. Uh, last month we did uh, suicide awareness. This month we're doing substance abuse awareness. Um, and you have a story you'd like to tell. And so um, I'm going to give you the mic, open it up to you. Um, I'll try not to interrupt too much. Um, I know the story fairly, fairly well, but I always have questions and people, people always give me a hard time about being naturally curious. But if I have something, I'll, I'll ask you some questions and maybe clarify some stuff. But please tell us your story um, and how it relates to this subject. And, and hopefully somebody out there can identify with what you went through and what you're going through. And if they need the help, they can get it as well. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Justin. And yeah, I have talked to you about this and other select people on the job, of course, closed mouth friends, I'd call them. 
Um, you know, for me, my battle was alcohol. And I was a classic binge type drinker. I learned to perfect that through college. That seemed to be the natural state of most of my group of friends anyways. But um, for me, I knew I drank differently from the very beginning. And anything I say here is not, I have, I'm not a victim. I made all these decisions. So I want to make people to know that although I went down that path when I was feeling sorry for myself at times and I couldn't figure it out, um, that is not the case. So anything I say, I want people to know that I am no victim. Every decision, everything I did was my own doing. Um, with that, the 13, I was your basic 80s latch kid key. I came home, my parents got divorced after pretty um, tough go of it. Um, my older brother had run away from home. It was a pretty violent area, to, so to speak. And um, so I was alone. I walked to and from school, no problem. My mom's trying to work, go to night school, so I had a lot of free time. And lo and behold, one night I'm in like the seventh grade and a friend comes over and, you know, this is the 80s where, hey, liquor cabinet, you know? I mean, this was, I think, came with the model home. Yeah. You know, everything's on the bar and decanters everywhere. It was just the how my parents did it, which also lended to me thinking it was pretty normal that drinking every night was normal. But I started as, um, got drunk, I think it was Kessler's whiskey, you know, just like some middle to low shelf something or other. But right then I knew I was different and I drank differently from then on out because I knew that it um, relieves whatever pain I had going on, whether that was from childhood or whatever it was, I felt more free to act like it wasn't me, but I felt more free to act however I wanted to. I wasn't reserved or introverted like I had been and gave me a lot more as I moved into high school, allowed me to speak to girls a little bit differently. It just gave me a lot of courage um, to kind of grow up and go through puberty and it gave me some of that um, ability to do that feeling I was this righteous, you know, pre and post pubescent kid running around with hormones flying everywhere. Um, so in high school, one of the biggest things I found out early was I was this kid that got perfect marks in school. And then by the time I was in 10th grade, obviously there had been like a shift in my life to where other things were important, which could be natural, but my important, the priority became like, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, whether it was football season or baseball season, didn't matter. I would pre-plan those, those days. Um, there was a place in Santa Ana, California where I could go and buy alcohol with no ID, you know, easy. So I'd always have everything pre-planned. I was the guy, I would get it squared away. So another little light goes on in hindsight that I was not gonna go to the football game and come back and not have the cold cooler in my Volkswagen bus, you know, I was gonna be mm -hmm. ready to go. Um, with that, I found myself making a lot of um, justifications for my actions. You know, well, I had this in my life. My older brother did drugs, and at least I didn't do that, Mom. I don't do that. I don't blame, don't try to categorize me like my older brother. I'm, I'm good. I go to school every day, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so all through this process, I can look in hindsight now and know I was doing this. I didn't necessarily know at this age. Um, I went off to school at the University of, well, first off, um, 
you know, playing football at the junior college level really allowed me to do things that, that going to Tijuana was close. And we did things that were just, you know, crazy, like really in a different country, drinking hard and kind of where you wake up, go, Ooh, I don't think, you know, that's not one of those things I do in front of my mom or my grandmother, you know, whatever it is. And yeah. you start those kind of shame pieces come into your mind and you're like, but I can, again, it's okay. That's what they do too. We're fine. You know, I'm fine. But in the back of my mind, you know that there's, again, I'm drinking differently. And I get to the University of Colorado in Boulder, which, of course, has been known to be access central to partying and whatnot. And I joined a fraternity, which, again, there's like a keg on tap every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, there's like cold beer right there. So guys doing homework in the study hall, we're drinking beers. So not really conducive to people that are starting to recognize they have a problem. And so that was, I was 20 when I got there. And then by the time, just before my 21st birthday, there was a couple incidents where, not proud of, that you just kind of go, you know what? I have a problem. This is not right. Because all these guys I drink hard with, they're not doing what I'm doing. For some reason, I'm out later and drinking more than the guys that already drink hard and heavy. And so I got in my car. I had a roommate in college who just went home to Georgia because he was on a different path drinking, but I think he was, you know, using marijuana and cocaine. And his parents said, you're coming home, and they put him into rehab. Mm-hmm. And I... Right away in my heart, I liked him. I knew he was a serious person outside of the partying he did, but he always came across to me as someone that was smart and was driven but did these things on the weekend. So right when he went home, I'm like, oh, this is me too. So I got, I called him, and I told him what I felt, and he's like, best I can tell you is either, you know, figure out if you need to go to rehab or just go down to AA. He goes, I'm in AA, go to AA. So in Boulder, I went down to AA, and what is this, 1988, 89, I guess, 89. And um, it's a huge AA meeting, like 150 people, like a very um, target-rich environment, you know, it's a big, big meeting. And, and I went for like three months, and it was interesting because I would feel good and everything that they said I recognized as something in me, most everything. And that's one of the unique things about going to AA meetings. You're like, oh, I do that, I did that, I did that. And um, one of the ways we help each other is we have a um, um, automatic understanding of each other because most people that haven't experienced this, I would say outside of the social stigma, just can't believe what you're telling them, even if it's my mom. She's like, you what? Well, how did that work? And I'm like, well, I don't know, mom. It's just this disease. And So I did that for three months, and I was feeling good about myself. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think I need it. And just to make sure, I asked a bunch of my hard-drinking friends whether they thought I needed it or not. They're like, no, you're in college. This is what we do in college. So it was a really easy way for me to um, avoid it basically and I was enabled obviously and you know I could function during the week go to school and then Thursday night Friday night was kind of an off but Thursday Friday Saturday were go time and then you somehow got yourself nursed back to health on Sunday and then you go back to school on Monday 
obviously that was you weren't feeling great tuesday a little bit better and try to exercise or do whatever to get it out of your system but before you know it you're feeling good you have one decent night's sleep because your body's normalizing and it's thursday night again so that's that cycle of binge drinking the cycle of you know functioning to the degree that i could get enough grades to stay in school and move forward um i did that and i did that for you know three years there and it was a it was a grinder um i met meredith my wife to be and you know we moved in together and that helped curb my drinking some because i wasn't going out all the time but i also through college i worked the whole time and i had a job and you know where i was on the hill in boulder and they had a bar and that's an underground world that allows you to drink like from when it closes all the people in the restaurant industry around boulder kind of know each other and this underground party starts at 2 30. so you start partying then it was just a different way to do it drinking during work because if you're working the door as like a bouncer or you're working behind the bar or as a, a server these are the kind of places that no one would know you were drinking and you know by the time your shift ends you know five or six beers and everything's fine and then you stay up until five in the morning for another hot god knows how many drinks and um sleep till two to get ready to go to work the next day at saturday or whatever it is um or you go to a football game where all bets are off of you know taking being responsible but i made it through college um clearly drinking way too much and I was able to, Meredith and I decided when we graduated, we were going to take these jobs out east with the idea, or out west, and idea of hopefully getting, her opportunity was great, mine was good, so we said, we'll split for a minute and get back together. Well, she's down there doing really well, and I'm up here, I'm, I'm with, again, one guy from my high school, another guy I met at college, and we have this sales pit, and it's just like being in fraternity again, right? So we work hard all day, and then we go out all night, or happy hour, or whatever it is. And the same cycle tends to repeat itself. But I can tell now I'm getting older and it's even harder to, to like get back and get going um, each day that you drink. Um, so little things fall off the table where you're playing catch up a lot and just not, you're not hitting on all your cylinders, period. And you know, I remember putting on a little weight and like, oh man, how could that be happening? You know, I don't know. I drank 12 beers and had Taco Bell at four in the morning. I can't believe I'd put on a three pounds. Mm -hmm. So, but one more little slide down the hill, if you will, you know, and something we say in around alcoholic tables are, you know, just when you think you hit your bottom, there's always another trap door. So there was one trap door and I'm working doing fine at work just a matter of I'm grinding though it's hard <laughs> I'm making it really hard and um, we continue on I continue on this it obviously makes I get back together with Meredith and say oh, I don't know what I was thinking let's get married you know so we we get married and flash forward then now we're living together in the Bay Area and in Palo Alto but the same behavior persists um, you know, we both come from families that technically could argue was um, alcoholic families. So a lot of this seemed normal to us. And we like repeat our patterns, right? This is what we know is how we're taught, whether she was 
it was her dad and how their household was. Now it's me and that's how our household was. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't going in a way that was, um, doesn't create a positive atmosphere for love and growth together. And now we have this child on the way and, um, you know, things had to change, but it was hard for me. So, and she carried the weight a lot while I was trying to figure out how to navigate. And again, made deals and bargains with her. Okay, I'll go to AA, I'll quit. And I'd go to AA, get through like step three in the program and I'm fine. You know, this is exactly what you'll tell yourself. I haven't drank in four months. I'm fine. Meanwhile, you know, your knuckles are blazing white because you're hanging on for dear life. Like you're not in a good mood. You don't want to do things. And you tell yourself everything's fine. See, I can't, I don't need to drink. I can do this eight months, one year, but it's painful. I mean, there is something chemically imbalanced in my body. And, you know, this is where I started feeling this obsession of my mind and an allergy of the body where it kind of gets you coming or going and my mind will obsess about something until I feed that allergy and then the allergy can't stop putting alcohol in your body and so you're in a tough spot you admit that you know you have a problem but this disease is telling you you don't and over time no matter what you do the disease is a progressive disease that is always getting stronger and what also we'll say is when you go into these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and I know there's probably people in the job that will get a kick out of this because it's true, though, is that, um, that the disease is doing push-ups in the, in the parking lot while you're in here. And that's what it was doing to me. I'd stop for four months and I'd drink harder. I'd stop for a year, I'd drink even more. And, again, there are some other trap doors that opened and... Um, there's nothing specific I would tell you other than it came to a point where I was unable to live with or without it. And my wife was unable to live with me anymore because of, you know, behavior, lack of engagement, all the things that grip you when you're sick. Um, and this isn't a sickness like getting cancer where she wants to take care of me. Now, this disease runs a hole through everyone. It affects like the person who has cancer we know is dying for sure and of course it affects the loved one i'm not trying to minimize that at all but this disease almost is like giving the other person cancer too it's destroying and yanking them down and you know spending money where you shouldn't blowing off things you shouldn't not being honest or at least omittance or things that are just not on the level and this is how my disease treated me and i think most people that have done it will say the same thing I um, came to a head one day, and that was, I was the PIO at the time, and about seven in the morning, after my wife and I had long discussions and emotional discussions, I made a phone call to, you know, my friend, um, Jamie McConnellog, and told her what I needed to do. And I needed to, I needed to go to rehab. I needed to stop this in its tracks. And obviously I couldn't do it on my own because I had tried. And I had people tell me that weren't affected by alcohol, you don't have any willpower and you can't, you just need to do it. And in the meantime, you're like, man, I can't try any harder. You know, do they know how hard this has been for me not to drink say six months or a year? 
and that was just painful and so with that I decided that that was going to be my route I made some calls and then that day I was gone um, and the job here supported me a hundred percent my direct supervisor was Randy at the time Chief Colas was you know the fire chief um, Jamie was over in the med division but that support group helped me navigate the stuff that had to happen here while I was gone and um, it was a incredible experience and um, you know what can I say it's the first time that I felt real hope for a long time and we can wear masks and I did around the job I wouldn't uh, the people I worked with the longest probably at 8c over there and one place probably knew I had some emotional moments but I don't know that they would say they knew what was going on I told them since all those people I worked with all know my what my life journey's been um, but the renewal of hope and spirit that I didn't have to live like that anymore was incredible and you know the people that you do that with I mean that program and the people that help you it's really a 360 type program and they keep you busy it's um you know they say you know the um you know, god will move mountains but you make sure you pick up a shovel you know there was a lot of writing and work and a lot of there's a lot of repair that has to go into that um while you're trying to move forward so and you can't really move forward until you take care of your past and um i was you know, I was in my late 40s, so that's a lot of living, and a lot of lists I had to address. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, um, I repaired a lot of relationships. Um, I forgave a lot of people, and I can look in the mirror and know that no matter what is going on, I'm going to be honest. And a lot of those things just were incident specific. Like I, you know, I was like throwing a a dart at a, a board if it was going to affect me I might just go around the corner like well I don't know if I want to get involved in that one um, so I sit here today and excuse me four years which it's an incredible incredible journey and how I do that for me it is a spirituality for me is the main thing a um, the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is the group that I work with I have closed mouth friends on this job. I have closed mouth friends off of this job. I have someone that we call a sponsor that um, he's a, you know, he might be 20, 15 years older than me. Who's a, a professional in town that's super smart that always is there to answer questions that just sometimes I don't know how to address it. You know, and he puts them in a simple, simple way for me because um, alcoholics are a funny bunch. We um. We're, we're a lot of everything. We have a lot of love, we have a lot of passion, and we can also have a lot of self-sabotaging and all at the same time, so sometimes those people help us sort our lives. Sure. Um, just because it's, like anyone probably does, you do with your wife or whatever, but this is specific to um, this disease, and we say we build this program, what we do every day, it's like taking medicine, it's our chemotherapy. And again, I keep bringing up cancer patients. I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to make a metaphor that 
you know, we have to do our medicine. And as soon as you don't, that disease is doing the push-ups will come just as strong. And you never know because you don't know if you'll stop drinking the next time or if you will get in the car or where you'll end up or what will happen. And, um, you know, that stove is hot and just no matter what. But if you stop doing these things on a day-to-day basis, we'll say that there's like a blind spot. This, like, the guy, my sponsor will tell me, you know that Dirk's Bentley song? Like, what was I thinking? Like, every alcoholic's anthem is, I don't know what I was thinking. How did that happen? Well, it's that obsession and allergy that just get people. I mean, there's... It's hard to explain as you've been down the road, but there are, that is what it is, and there's ways to move through it. And um, I guess the proudest moment I've had is knowing that I've, even when I was still struggling trying to get out of it, I made it clear to my kids, that like, hey, I'm alcoholic. Yeah, my, your granddad on both sides were alcoholics. Your grandmother on this side, your uncle's over here. It's, this is something that I should have seen coming miles away, but I didn't because it just wasn't, it was just how we lived. And that's just the way it was. I mean, wine, drinks for dinner, after dinner drink. I mean, it was just alcohol flowing all the time. As a kid, go motorcycle riding here, have a beer, kid. Okay. You know, it was just part of the culture of the family. But um, I'm proud to know that, I know my son will drink now and again, but he is, he keeps it at arm's length. And my daughter, I think she, really hates it actually so if if anything happens there's a cycle that's been broken in my family that um hopefully will last for more generations talk to me a little bit about support because Meredith is a wonderful woman mm-hmm. she obviously she stuck with you through this how critical is support not only from family members but you know your friends and things like that and how critical was it in that journey you know from when you started to where you're at today mm-hmm. well i'd say it's it's super critical um however there's it's a balance because you you really need to do this work and you're re- it's hard on the family at first because you're really focused on letting all this information out with your sponsor and doing this kind of work with the group and your wife is a little bit omitted because what is my wife waiting for? She's waiting for my amends to her. And there she's kind of like, yeah, you know, this has been 20 years. So plus before we were married, and I don't blame her at all, but that's not something you want to lead with because we'll mess that up. There's a reason that's later down the steps. Sure. Um, So it's very critical that they support you. And it was critical that she supported that this is what I needed to do. And she always has been supportive. In fact, I, you know, this, the um, part of me says I can't believe that I even know her still, you know. Well, I was going to say, like, when you called her, when you were talking about calling her and saying, you know, we need to be apart, and it was that 90 days. Mm-hmm. You called her back and said, hey, let's get back together. You're lucky she said yes. <laughs> yeah, I think there were other yeah. powers at work than, yeah. than my... Uh, I was like, holy cow. Yeah. Because some people could just go, no, I'm good. You know. And sometimes I believe that's, you know, my journey, her journey, our journey together. And because she's benefited as well. Um, 
not at the time in the long run she's benefited to be able to look back at her own life as a child and um you know this is the road i had to travel i think sure to break a chain or whatever it is it's just this is the road and i was happy to finally get on it i was trying to make shortcuts it wasn't working yeah how are you and i I mean that specifically like how you doing i'm really good and like just because i get a little emotional here is a really good thing because most alcoholics will tell you that they don't feel anything we're either sky high because the buffs are well when they used to have a football team (laughs) you know you're going to go do this and it's going to be awesome but as soon as that ends you could be in the basement dragging around like nothing's important and but now i feel things and it doesn't have to be one thing high or low it's just the nice things the sun and little things that um you had taken for granted for so long because i wasn't interested in anything but self-centered kind of behavior so i couldn't see the sun or the hike or whatever Mm -hmm. i was doing so with that i'm great i think i don't know that people around me fully see it because i don't you know we're at this age where i don't we're not hanging out 20 hours a week at the batting cages you know we don't we get to know each other for half hour at a time and then we go do our lives or i think my wife will tell you that i'm doing much better like she enjoys life with me like that's probably how she drew it up yeah you know before it really started gripping me it was fun for a minute and then when (laughs) once the skids came off yeah and i guess i guess why i bring that up is um because it's a happy ending you know what i mean It, it doesn't have to be um you don't have to continue down the, the path of destruction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, once you come to terms with who you are and what's happening to you and you, you go out and get the help that you know you need, it can be a happy ending. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that a lot of things, look, it's um, today is happy. That's mm-hmm. how we have to look at it, right? And whether you're an alcoholic or not, you really have to focus on the present moment. They really focus on that with alcoholics um, because we'll get focused on something else and start thinking that whether you live a comparative mind to the other people's lives or whatever you start doing, it can barely be a downhill. So, yes, there can be a happy ending. And the good news is when the days are tough, I have this little tool book and support that we talked about, whether it's my wife or my sponsor, people in this job that I can call. Um, it, I just have to pick up those, fo- I just have to make that move. No one can you know, look at my rear end and read my mind as my friend Nick Chappell will say. Mm-hmm. But it, um, the idea is that there is a toolkit that maybe most people that don't experience this get it from as a kid. You know, alcoholics kind of stop growing emotionally there for a long time. So we have to go back and relearn those things. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, happy would be an understatement. You know, my kids are well aware of what's happened. We're open and honest with it. And having that honest approach to life and everything, you know, is probably really normal in non-alcoholic households, but it wasn't for me as a kid. And that's the path we were on in my house. And We've changed that, and I say we, me, but it affects everyone. Yeah, sure. And I, although you're happy, I, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't imply that it was easy. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's going to be bumps in the roads, and that's why you need support. And um, it's hard work, you know. And like yes. I, I think you would say, and I guess I'm going to put words in your mouth, and then you mm-hmm. can correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong. But it's a day by day process. You know, you take one day at a time, and sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're bad, and you you know where to get the help you need, and you, you keep moving forward. Yeah, all the walls that I go in for meetings, it says they're right on the wall one day at a time. You know, sounds simple. It's harder to live than it, it, than it you know, than to read it. But, yeah, you're exactly right. And, um, you know, the hope is here that if someone, anyone, one person, at some point says, well, maybe I'm going to ask a question or two, that they can call me or call anyone else. There is absolutely, there's nothing anyone could tell me that would surprise me about being alcoholic and the things we do and how our minds work it's it's kind of to go back and if I shared my journals here you guys put me in a rubber room and lock the key you know (laughs) but um, but there is a way and not there's not one size that fits all there are other ways to do things because mine was Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't mean there's not other 12-step programs that may fit what you think you need this was just my way Um, so Get with the people that have those programs like Judith or like HR. They can lead that out. I mean, they can lay it out directly to you. Insurance is really good for this type of stuff. Um, the job is supportive. They know how valuable our people are. That getting them back whole is way more important than limping them along. So I think that's, um, you know, our leadership really gets that and really has been supportive. All right. Thank you for your time. Is there anything else that I'm forgetting? Anything else you wanted to add before we, we cut out? No, that's it. I, again, thank you. And thanks to, you know, Judith. And let's hopefully this, um, again, can affect one. If it gets one person, that's good. Yeah. And I hope everybody out there knows if you need help, recognize that you need help. Come to any of us. We'll help you out. We'll get you Uh, set on the right path. We may not have the specific answers for you, but we can get you to the people who can. Thank you, Brian. I'm proud of you. Keep up the good work, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Justin.